0: Let's talk industrial earnings. We had 3M. We had Caterpillar out today. Lots of uncertainty in the second quarter. Lots of uncertainty to the point of withdrawing guidance, as we've seen from a lot of other companies, from some of these industrial companies as well. When we want to talk industrial companies, we talk to Karen Ubelhart. She's covered this space for decades. Uh, She's with Bloomberg Intelligence. Karen, thanks so much for joining us. So 3M and Caterpillar, take whatever you want, the highlights you think we need to know.
2: Um, I'd say, number one, the breadth of, de- of the declines. Um, everybody knew things were going to be down and down double digits, but uh, CAT, every region, every segment, um, 3M did a little better um, because of the diversity. Um, th- so it's really the swiftness of the drop that um, is, is the issue. Second thing is costs are doing pretty well. The decremental margins were not bad at Caterpillar, given you know 22% sales declines. They really didn't do that badly on cost. Because, A, they have been taking out structural costs for years, and B, they did move fast. Um, On 3M, you know, they they have a diversity that actually helps them. And I am a fan of of, um, multis, if they're well-run, although they're out of favor at the moment. And um, they also saw declines, and they're going to expect double-digit declines in April but not as significant as, of course, the deep cyclicals. Um, I'd say the other point is everybody was talking about 3M's PPE impact, you know, all the the respirators. It's less than 1% of sales. It certainly helped, but it wasn't a big deal. Um, I'm just... And yes, they're all eliminating guidance. You know, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, no. I, I'm wondering,
1: I was reading a story the other day about uh, how executives never like to waste a good crisis and that basically <laughs> it's a fantastic opportunity <laughs> to, to accelerate moves that they would already uh, be doing or find it prudent to do under the cover of it's a crisis. And there's no place that that actually uh, is more relevant than in the industrial space where there's been an incredible transformation, whether it's downsizing and shrinking and becoming uh, more focused or other moves. What do you glean from the earnings so far in terms of ways that they are reshaping in the wake
2: of this that they may have done anyway? Yeah, I mean, in the case of the two we're talking about today, CAT and 3M, they both have long-term structural programs going on. And they have, I mean, CAT used the example, uh, their their SGNA and their R&D and sort of their non-manufacturing costs were flat um, uh, from 2016 to 2019, while revenues were up 40%. So, I mean, they have already been taking big chunks of, of um, costs and people, et cetera, out of their businesses. But certainly they're going to accelerate that. They're going to call it more restructuring, but I'm sure they're going to try to hold on for, to as much of the cost reduction as they can. I mean, the other big change that's going to happen, of course, is supply chain is going to change a lot because, boy, did we learn how long supply chains from abroad are not good. And um, so you're going to see a lot more. I mean, 3M does a lot of local for local. So does Caterpillar. But around the margin, there's going to be changes in that as well. Um, and, you know. So I think it's going to be a continuation, um, and they're going to try to hold on as much as of much of the cyclical restructuring that they're doing as they can. So that's uh, I would agree with you there.
0: So Karen, I know a lot of these companies, these industrial companies, have been pulling their guidance like a lot of other sectors uh, as well. But did the management give you a sense of kind of what their playbook is? Are they thinking of, that this uh, economic contraction that we f- is is occurring in the second quarter is going to be? lower for longer or do they expect this economy once it's we start to open up to to reaccelerate in the second half of the year?
2: I think the general theme so far is lower for longer like you know second quarter is going to be terrible third quarter is not going to be great either and you know a lot of these guys still have significant U.S. exposure where it's been a roll down of the shutdowns and it's probably going to be a roll back up um uh, both Caterpillar and 3M did mention the snapback in China, but that's a managed economy. So they shut it down quickly and they're spending money, um, you know, on stimu- on stimulation and- of, the- of the economy and getting people back to work quickly as well. So I would not. And in fact, that question came up in the 3M call. Could we use that as a playbook? China's different. Um, Europe is snapping back a little bit. U.S. is going to roll out slowly is the general sense. So 2020 is going to definitely be a tough year. I will say one thing on China. 3M is the economy with the diversity of their product line. They said across the board snapback. It isn't just you know one or two segments. So that economy is starting to roll back up.
1: That that's interesting. And, and just real quick here, Karen, do we have a sense of whether the pace of the snapback is? I hate saying this. I actually am feeling a visceral response <laughs> V shaped,
2: or is it a slower kind of bounce back? <laughs> or a W or a U um, <laughs> or okay, a swoosh. No. <laughs> Um, the, China feels like a V, you know, um, U.S. probably pretty slow rollout, and, not, and I don't think you're going to see good numbers till 2021, you know, um, because, you know, there are, you know, we're, we're fighting over how fast we're going to come back, you know, yeah. and uh, so I, I, and really the companies are really saying we're going month by month, we don't know. And April, we know, is going to be down 15 percent in the in like the multis and 20, 25 percent in the cyclicals, you know, but we don't really know. And and 3M, which who never gives monthly orders, are giving monthly orders right now until we know what the heck's going on. Emerson is also doing it. So they don't know, but they're going to try to give us as much as they can along the way.
1: They don't know seems to be the theme of this earnings season. Karen Ubelhart, thank you so much for being with us, senior industrials analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And you know, honestly, John Ferro has raised this point a number of times. How can any company actually give guidance at yeah. this point, given the fact that people have a real lack of clarity around what's going to happen? But the fact that they're giving monthly order numbers just to say, hey we'll give you the data as quickly as we get it
0: yeah exactly and the question is will there what will this do to forward guidance going forward will companies give less of it maybe It's time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're pleased to be joined by Opinion columnist Dr. Ellen Wald. She's a president of Transversal Consulting, also a Bloomberg Opinion contributor. Uh, Dr. Wald, thank you so much for joining us. Boy, you know this—what we're seeing in the oil market is just extraordinary. We had negative prices just a week ago. We had tremendous volatility so far uh, this week. A little bit of a bid today. What if you could just set the stage for us, Ellen, and just give us a sense of where you think the supply and demand dynamics are today for global crude?
3: Yeah, the supply and dynamic uh, d- dynamics for um, for crude are not good. Uh, looking at, at what's happening, and uh, we still got. I think
1: that's a fair way- assessment, by the way. <laughs> not not good. Carry on. Not
3: good. We still got way too much oil oil production coming on the market on the market right now and not nearly enough demand. And that's resulted in a massive build in storage. And we're not just talking about storage of crude oil. We're talking about gasoline stocks are way up. Um, diesel fuel, jet fuel, massive uh, amounts of this stuff is piling up. And even though refineries are cutting their runs, now that's leading to even more buildup of crude oil. And so that's really uh, the main issue here, as is I think this imbalance in supply and demand, which was not helped, by the way, by uh, Saudi Arabia, which increased its oil production to its maximum level of 12 million barrels per day in April. Uh, and at the beginning of, of April, you know, it, it seemed like that that might be okay, but, but really uh, once uh, economies around the world were, were clearly shutting down, they maintained that production when clearly there wasn't enough demand. So that kind of just piled on uh, to all of the, the other issues.
1: So this complete imbalance has been manifested most significantly in the negative pricing in the May WTI contract uh, that just rolled. We're seeing an exodus from the June contract as the biggest oil ETF in the United States uh, amends its its uh contracts its 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 provisions yet again in terms of what it is willing to buy my question is how long will this complete imbalance last a lot of people putting faith that by july things will start to ease and people will start to use cars and fly around more do you think that that optimism is misplaced well
3: i think that that's a that's a it's not a, a bad assessment um i would say that's it's, it's optimistic but i don't think it's, it's too optimistic i do think a lot will depend on uh the psychological effects of this uh lockdown and these quarantines because even it, as states in the united states we're seeing them start to lift quarantine uh restrictions and lockdown restrictions the question really is are people going to feel comfortable going out of their houses going back to work sending kids to school or camp. Uh, and that, I think, will really set the tone for whether we're going to see demand roaring back or kind of slowly trickling back and that could really uh, you know that could spill over oh past the summer and then over into uh, into the fall and winter even when demand is is traditionally lower so it were we could even compound the problem if we don't have strong summer demand uh, by by heading into to winter with lower demand on the other hand okay we could see a massive surge in gasoline demand in the United States for example as if things get bad to normal and people are psychologically ready to get back out there but uh, air travels not back we could see a huge surge in gasoline demand as people drive a lot more so it really I think depends a lot on uh, how comfortable people feel and also how comfortable they're made to feel by the authorities and medical professionals
0: so Ellen how bad is it going to get for our friends in the US shale patch
3: it's already bad, yeah. uh, and I think it's only going to get worse. Uh, it's it's very bad. Companies are shutting down, and the the question I think now is not just is it going to be bad for those in the upstream but is it going to spill over into the midstream into the pipeline into the people who are are doing the the midstream business uh and and are we going to see it spilling into into that area because um we're we're seeing we we can expect more layoffs i think we've already seen a lot um bankruptcies but then the question is does this spill into midstream and do we see long-term damage to our midstream infrastructure and our ability to, um, you know, get that oil to where it needs to go, because that has for many years been kind of the limiting factor. And we were just starting to get over that issue right when this hits.
1: Just real quick here, Ellen, I'm wondering what this means in terms of the and oil prices for Saudi Arabia and any p- uh, potential political threat, given uh, how much of the nation's budget relies on crude
3: I think that that's an issue that cannot be ignored, uh, particularly at this point, because crude oil, I mean, we have we have Brent barely above $20 a barrel. And at that level, Saudi Arabia is making just a few dollars in royalties off of every barrel of oil. It pumps, and that's not good for the Saudi budget. And so far, what we've seen is basically a complete dismissal of these issues. The, the Saudi government is choosing to rely on um, borrowing money, and that's not a bad idea. Saudi Arabia definitely has more room to borrow, but they're not I think we're seeing them not really look at the long-term ramifications here. Dubai just announced that they're cutting cutting their expenses and so yeah. it's really unclear as to to whether they're going to see a need to cut expenses. Uh, the country could could be seeing some serious financial problems which as we know can lead to political unrest.
1: Ellen Wald, thank you so much for being with us. Ellen Wald, president of Transversal Consulting and a Bloomberg opinion contributor. In some ways, the U.S. equity market is going to be put to the test this week as the big tech companies report earnings. The question is, how much further can U.S. stocks rally if they don't necessarily have the leadership of the tech giants joining us now, Jim Paulson, chief investment strategist at the Luthold group, joining us. Uh, I'm wondering, Jim, do you feel like the market cannot continue rallying without the support? And I don't want to just say big tech. We're really talking Amazon, Microsoft, and Netflix here.
4: I think it could. I, I, I think, I, I, think that it, it'd be hard if they are going to collapse, Lisa, you know, over a sustained period have a, a big collapse, I think that would uh, be hard for the market to avoid uh, going down again in a big way. But if they just underperform, I think that's maybe even to be expected somewhat in the sense that, um, you know, look, look where we are here, where there's now greater expectations of restarting the economy uh, after shutting it to off the position um, and with that comes, I think, new leadership. And you're seeing that in things like the performance of the high beta, S&P high beta index, small caps, cyclical stocks, you know, over defensive stocks, um, even international markets doing better. I, I think it, it's real likely, which often happens at the start of a new recovery, if you will, if the market's starting to look in discount that is that's the type of leadership you get. Um, so it might well be that new era of growth, if you will, does have a period of underperformance as the economy reemerges from the co- uh, from the coronavirus crisis. And I don't, I think that could happen within the context of a general rising market, even though underperformance by some of these most popular areas.
0: So, James, the you were hearing more and more from scientists and medical professionals that it's Uh, possible, probably likely, that the virus will return in some form in the fall and winter. Do you think the market's discounting that risk properly as we start thinking about reopening and and maybe a V or a U-shaped recovery at the end of the year?
4: (laughs) Who knows for sure, Paul. I mean, there's very little about this whole crisis that anyone knows, um, including myself. Um, But, you know, I do think one of the things that's likely to happen that there hasn't been a lot of discussion about is sure it's going to take a while before this virus is gone. It's going to take a while before we get all parts of the economy back functioning again, uh, even in general, let alone at full capacity. However, that does not mean that there might come sort of an appreciation among investors in general, companies, policy officials, that both this virus and the economy can coexist. And, you know, both can be there and be in functioning capacity. I don't think it's one or the other, necessarily, which is what we had here of late. I think in part because the primary issue has been the hospital crisis. And we've come a long ways in increasing our capacity and abilities there. And we'll probably, even if we have a reemergence of the virus not likely to be as severe as the first time. And that combination means that we might certainly have reemergent virus problems down the road, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to have to close everything back up again. I think we're we're already learning how to operate within the context of a live virus. So um, I think one of the realizations that even the market might be coming to is that both can coexist.
1: Jim, I got to say, your cool collection and your calm assessment of markets is a very nice contrast with sometimes my my gut fear when I read some of the headlines that cross and you know Moody's sending me a report.
4: Be wrong too, Lisa.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough, but you know, at least you know you you know there there is there is sort of sanity and preservation. Right now, we should note that we are seeing the Nasdaq turn down negative seven tenths of a percent right now, and the S and P is just up a tenth of a percent. The Dow up about a quarter of a and, and I think to your point, you could have both this sort of reality of the unfolding crisis and also look to the other side of this. I guess then, are you buying into this rally or are you just sort of sitting tight and not expecting Armageddon?
4: Um, I, I, I definitely am. am, am I, my approach, I guess, is what we're doing, at least in our gap portfolio, is um, kind of sitting with an overweight in new era. Um, a mild overweight, I think.
1: Hold on a second. Um, new, era, think, new era new is big you, tech, yeah?
4: Yeah, well, not just, not just tech, but kind of new era growth. It's a little broader than just tech, but certainly tech and comms, part of healthcare, part of consumer discretionary. Um, you know, I, I, I think I, I'm okay with, with, uh, with sitting in an overweight in that area, but what I'm doing is taking advantage of any weak periods here, which we'll probably have some more, and I would start to add more in the broader uh, participation areas of this market that haven't done that well, even in the last bowl. I, I'd i look, as I said, to high beta, S&P high beta. I'd look to cyclical sectors. I would look to small caps. I'd look to international and add some of those components here because I think they, they are likely to have leadership over the next year as we, as we sort of reemerge from this, this thing. You know, You mentioned the fear and to me that's a that's a good thing. I think historically whenever we've had really high levels of fear, and we've got all three fears in this one the fear of losing your money in the stock market, the fear of losing your job, and the fear of losing your life. Fear on steroids, if you will. Typically that's led to good returns and risk assets. Look where we where we (laughs) I know but but look where we are in this crisis, too. You know, we 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 start when it first hit China. We thought, well, well, that's not really a problem. And then, well, it's just going to be a temporary problem. Right. And then it was this is full blown crisis. And now, it's evolved to oh, it's never going to go away. It's going to last forever. It's going to fundamentally change capitalism. It's never going to go away. I think that's the stages of a crisis. <laughs> The, yeah. And we're in the last stage, at least in yep.
0: media. Hey, James, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. We appreciate your calm per- <laughs> perception of what's going on in the markets. James Paulson, Chief Investment Strategist for the Lutold Group on the phone from Minneapolis. We always appreciate his thoughts in the markets here. And Lisa, you were just mentioning you kind of did that quick market check here. The markets really kind of rolled over after a strong opening here uh, as I guess we're digesting earnings and thinking about uh, what the Fed may or may not say tomorrow.
1: Yeah. Good luck. Good luck trying to find a narrative for this market. That's all I want to say. I mean, from minute to minute, you could change the narrative and it's easy to do it one way or another. Right now, let's take a look at the pharmaceutical industry after we did get some results from Merck and Pfizer. And before we dig into those, we are going to be joined uh, by Max Neeson, biotech pharma and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. And I never want to miss up a chance to ask Max about vaccine development, where we are in terms of that, and how well international pharmaceutical companies as well as scientists are cooperating to move as quickly as possible to make this happen.
5: So uh, it, it does seem like there there is a broad movement towards cooperation. Um, companies sharing science, uh, beginning to focus on the issue of, of manufacturing at scale, uh, which is the thing you have to worry about once you actually have an effective vaccine. Um, there there was a report this week from from an organization called CEPI that's working to do some of that coordination and advance candidates that they they hope there may be a vaccine available for sort of limited emergency use by, by the end of this year. But again, that would be in, in very small quantities and only if everything goes very, very right. So I'm uh, still looking probably at at sometime next year or later. For, for sort of the, the broadly available vaccine that, that it would take to, to really um, get get life back to normal.
1: So Merck did report earnings today, and they weighed in on the potential for a vaccine. What did they have to say?
5: So Merck is a company that, that has been a little bit later to, to sort of join the fray. Um, they, they are actually the one company of the major pharmaceutical groups that's actually successfully developed a vaccine in response to the pandemic. So anything that they end up doing is, is worth responding, or at least worth watching very closely, though they will be uh, at least to some extent behind some of the other efforts that started sooner. Uh, of course, hopeful that, that that past experience will lead them uh, to a, a faster and, and more effective result at some point.
0: So Max, so that's the the update on the vaccine. How about testing? That's the more immediate issue here, testing equipment, testing laboratories, where are we on that
5: so there there has been some some genuine improvement in in the last week or so in terms of the testing rate and and we just got a a plan from the Trump administration um that that should hopefully bring a little bit more uh, federal attention funding and coordination to the issue, uh, their their goal of uh, the, the Trump administration's goal is somewhat short of what some experts have called for, uh, which is a really dramatic increase in testing, such that you know people could could be tested multiple times a month. Uh, those on the front lines, things like that. Um, you know, it'll take some time to get to the point where we have really robust. Diagnostic testing, let alone that sort of broader surveillance uh, and antibody testing, but definite progress and uh, this effort by the Trump administration should help to some extent.
1: I remember uh, a long time ago, about, I don't know, three months ago, when other diseases and other medicines were in the forefront of people's minds, in particular with cancer and and the development there. And, And I'm wondering, you know, Pfizer in particular has been particularly on the front lines with new drugs to combat cancer, we got their earnings. Let's talk about some of the other things that we're learning aside from the coronavirus, because life does go on in other ways too.
5: Sure, so the, the two main things I would point to from from Pfizer, Merck, uh, Novartis also reported today, the impact that you see uh, in terms of their business come, comes in sort of two waves. The first is that they, they are seeing some reduced sales uh, for, for drugs like cancer drugs, they're administered in a hospital settings as people have a harder time doing that safely. Now, certain things you can't avoid, and, and so they're, they're doing all right. But Merck, for example, did cut its expected sales because it has a, a high proportion of those kind of drugs. In terms of the long run, there there may be a slowdown in, in various drug development efforts because it's, as you might imagine, really hard to run a, a cancer drug trial right now. Um, You're know, thinking about getting a lot of immunocompromised people to one place, and, and often to traditional clinical trial sites, which are at hospitals, at infusion suites that are being used for other things right now. So it's it's both kind of a short term financial impact and a long term disruption of, of research. Um, it'll be some time before we we find the real extent of both of those. Uh, companies are still being pretty cautious about making really forward looking projections, given the, the sort of early stage of the epidemic and and the recovery from it.
0: Max, you cover all things healthcare. How come there's not a Manhattan Project equivalent for um, treatments and vaccines for this virus?
5: So, to a certain extent, there is there is a lot of public funding being directed uh, through organizations like Cepi through through BARDA um, towards supporting organizations that that are working on these treatments. I think more, very much so, uh, more has to be done in terms of you know doing surge funding uh, coordinating efforts making sure that the best candidates as much funding as they could possibly need and then the most expensive problem the one that really needs that manhattan project effort uh, something that i know bill gates is devoting some attention and resources to is when you have a viable vaccine how do you rapidly deploy it produce it at a global scale Uh, that's something that that really hasn't been done before and is going to require an enormous amount of, of spending and wasteful spending in that if you wait for um, you know, concrete proof that this uh, is the best possible vaccine—the one that works—to even start building manufacturing, they won't even be ready nearly in, in time. So you're gonna have to build some manufacturing that you'll never, knew, never end up using, considering that a lot of these vaccines use uh, different and novel technologies. So that's the thing where I think you can, you should have a, a dramatic increase in funding and attention, because that is a difficult, huge, and thorny problem that will need to be solved in the next year or two.
1: We're speaking with Max Neeson, biotech, pharma, and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. And Max, since we have you, and since we have some time, I, I want to take this conversation a step further, not just as far as where we put money to develop the vaccine and how to do it quickly, but the entire ecosystem of creating vaccines and these crucial medicines. And I'm struck by a Joseph Stiglitz uh, column in Project Syndicate, Nobel Prize winner, economist at Columbia University, where he was saying that the entire structure of drug creation is flawed and really goes against creating some of these crucial medicines. Can you speak a little bit to that and how maybe there'll be a rethink of the incentives around creating new medicines that could potentially be beneficial going forward?
5: Oh, absolutely! This is a real hobby horse of mine. Um, I know it is. He's absolutely <laughs> right. You know, the, <laughs> the medicines that we incentivize are are the ones that are the most profitable, and often specifically the ones that are most profitable in the United States. Now, what that often means is a lot of money goes towards rare disease drugs, towards cancer drugs that are really expensive and and don't get a lot of reimbursement pressure because there aren't that many people that that get any given cancer disease. What that leaves behind are are vaccines and especially vaccines for infectious diseases, which, you know, by their very nature, they they often arise in in less developed countries. They arise at moments of of great public health need where there's not a lot of tolerance for, for high pricing. Um, and then when you point to um another potential source of future pandemics um antibiotic resistant bacteria the incentive if you actually develop a good um a good medicine for those is to use it as little as possible so um you know the the pricing the things that we we tend to value and and pay money for are not the ones that we want to most incentivize i very much hope that we can uh, begin to build different incentives so there's not just uh, uh, an incentive to to kind of jump in when there's a crisis, but to develop the sort of long term pipelines of technology that that will help when when the next crisis runs around uh, us to be more prepared at a global level
0: so Max, just i I know you talk to lots of different people within the health healthcare space scientists and and doctors and so on you know, I guess one thing to me as a lay person here, this is a virus. Uh, It's similar to other coronaviruses, maybe even the common cold, maybe the flu. It doesn't appear from that perspective that we have to literally start from ground zero and have these biotech companies, these pharma companies saying they just, you know, it's going to take a lot of time like any other new drug. Again, am I reading that wrong? Is this so different that most of these scientists really are starting from ground
5: zero? So, you know, this is actually kind of getting back to incentives. Uh, you know, the closest cousin that we know about to this coronavirus is SARS. And there were nascent efforts to develop a vaccine. But since that outbreak petered out, there was no financial motivation to keep developing it. And because we don't have well-developed incentive structures or, or long-term financing structures for developing vaccines that don't have a profitable economic future, uh, those vaccines stopped getting developed. So we didn't make a lot of the discoveries about coronaviruses that might help this time around. Um, You know, there there are some vaccines for animal coronaviruses, but none of them are are especially effective. It it just all comes down to the fact that making vaccines is incredibly difficult and making a vaccine for a, a comparatively new and poorly understood virus, even though it's related to ones we know, it still does take a lot of work from scratch to, to develop a, a long lasting and, and robust immune response. That's just a fundamentally difficult scientific problem. And one that while there have been you know real recent advances, Uh, there's still a lot that we're learning on the fly. The most advanced candidate or one of is is what's called an mRNA vaccine. The nice part about it is that it's very adaptable. It's something that can be produced quickly in response to a new pathogen. But we we don't know and what we're going to kind of have to find out on the fly is whether it's safe, reliable, and effective and beyond that able to be produced on a mass scale. So it it really is unfortunately a lot of work that, that does have to be done from scratch, both due to you know bad incentives, underinvestment, and uh, sometimes the wrong priorities and in where we spend money.
1: In the meantime, there's another kind of immunity, herd immunity, that can be created by people getting the virus, potentially. We don't know. And uh, not being able to get it, maybe, again, we aren't sure. WHO has put something out saying that there's no evidence showing that you do get immunity to the virus once you already have it and develop the antibodies. But there is a question of how much of the population in the hardest-hit area in, in the United States how much of the population has been exposed? And, and there have been studies, is this right, that there about 25% of the population has already been exposed, Max?
5: So that that's one study. And, and fundamentally, that's an extrapolation from a limited sample size based on a test of, of unknown specificity. How, so how do you really you feel about this? Tests, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if the final answer, once we have... More data from a series of reliable tests it isn't too far off from there, but um, it, it may be that, that it is substantially less than that once we get uh, a sample size that, that better represents the the broader population and a more reliable test and then on the question of, of herd immunity um, that, that's one where we don't just need to you know this one round of testing we need to do that test and then follow people for months in order to get a sense of, of whether reinfection is possible and and who might be vulnerable. Um, You know, those common coronaviruses, those seasonal ones we mentioned before, people lose immunity inside a year. That's why they come back seasonally. Um, if, if that's the case for for this virus, then if we reopen in cautiously, if we we aren't vigilant, uh, we may see you know really robust seasonal reoccurrence. and that's something that we we really need to understand, and that should inform the the sort of ongoing response uh, for not just you know the next few months, but for years ahead.
1: Max Nason, thank you so much uh, for taking all this time with us. Max Nason, biotech, pharma, and healthcare columnist with Bloomberg Opinion, uh, joining us on the phone from New York.